0: QArt Foundation's Critical Distance podcast series, produced as a part of Meeting Artists' Needs, a professional development program for artists of all ages and backgrounds. QArt Foundation's Meeting Artists' Needs program is generously supported by the Joan Mitchell Foundation. You are listening to Conversation 3 Partnerships from Make Some Place, conversations about people, practice, and creative placemaking conversation was recorded live at Q Art Foundation.
1: Welcome, welcome uh, to Make Some Place. My name is Jordan and I am joined by a wonderful panel of experts. I, I don't want to say too much um, because I want us to have some really good conversation tonight. And so I'm so excited uh, to present this Evening with my collaborator Perrin, who uh, will speak, and we can talk more about how we met each other, and then also Sunny Widman and Bridget Bartolini, who are our guest panelists for the evening. Um, Sunny is the director at National Arts Strategies, which was actually my introduction to what creative placemaking is, Um, and so we'll talk more about what National Arts Strategies is, what they're doing, and how you can get involved. And then through that program, which was a fellowship program that National Arts Strategies offers, called the Creative Community Fellows Program, uh, we, want, we met an amazing group of people. So, Perrin was in that program, and our other panelists tonight, Bridget, was in that. Um, so, we stick together. That's, uh, I guess, what I want to say as we lead into this conversation about partnerships. Just a quick note about my background. Uh, I started in New York in the theater industry. I moved over to nonprofit environmentalism, and for about five years, I was producing events in outdoor spaces, parks, and community gardens. Um, and I was just, I was just doing that because that's what I, that's what I was doing. And I didn't know that it connected into this bigger conversation that was happening, evolving, and very necessary that we all get involved with. And that is this conversation around creative placemaking and we're gonna talk a lot about what creative placemaking is but really how partnerships can benefit creative placemaking and so how when we work together we're able to better impact our communities Um, so I'm really excited by that and Throughout the evening, there's going to be some set-up interaction time, but if you have questions throughout the night, this is a very very like informal evening. Um, we're, we're glad you're here and we want you to get all of your questions answered. So just raise your hand throughout the evening. We'll try to stop and, and make sure we're all on the same page and then keep moving along. So with that, I will again reintroduce my collaborator, Karen. Um, welcome.
2: Um, so uh, speaking of partnerships today, which is a topic, of Jordan and I met at the National Arts Strategies Creative Community Fellow, and um, when this opportunity came up with the Q Foundation, I tapped Jordan and said, "You know, let's put in a proposal for this. Let's let's talk about this with our other artists because I think." When we went to this fellowship, we were in a space with other people who didn't necessarily know what creative placemaking was, but that they were kind of all here together, doing this similar kinds of work. They didn't have that label for creative placemaking, but you know, as we got there, we learned more about it, and we're like, oh, we're doing all really interesting work, and then, yes, as you said, we stick together and partner up. Uh, one year later, fast forward, I started my own creative studio practice because my background is urban planning, and so I wanted to fold it into my. Curiosity about arts, design, culture, community engagement, and so this is one of the projects that I'm working on through my creative studio practice. You guys
1: want to? Enjoy? Yeah, yeah. So with that, um, just by a show of hands, before maybe introducing yourselves to the series or stumbling on it somehow, who who has an introduction? Who knows anything about creative placemaking?
2: Well, who's come across the term? Well, who's come
1: across the term?
2: Besides... Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. Who out there identifies themselves as an artist of some sort? Great. And I think that's pretty much everybody. So, okay. Good. So, what we're going to discuss in the context of creative placemaking is how multiple... uh, how many different sectors of society, so how private... Um, so government, corporations, individuals, artists, nonprofit organizations, schools, basically every different aspect almost of, of society as we know it. How we can combine forces to strengthen our communities and I think kind of just innately it might lend itself, you, you think, well, partnerships are very obvious, part of doing things together, right? And they they are, but I think that there are really strategic partnerships. And I think more than than anything, what we're trying to do tonight is dispel this idea that in order to be successful, especially as an artist, um, you need to work solo. In fact, partnerships are really where it's at, is the way I like to say it. And certainly there's time for solo work, but there's a lot of benefit to working in partnerships. And I think a lot of it is just the illumination of the different resources that exist. Because I can't possibly hope to know everything, but Perrin might. For instance, I didn't know that Q existed, Perrin did. So by combining powers, here we are tonight. So I'm gonna get out of the way and introduce again, or, or, or uh, reintroduce Sunny, who uh, again is the Director of National Arts Strategies, which is where this all started to come together for me. So. With that, Sonny, welcome.
0: Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Karen.
3: Thanks, everybody, for being here. Um, so, my name is Sonny Woodman, and I represent National Arts Strategies. Um, I didn't bring any business cards or anything like that, so I put info up here. If you want to check out our website, or uh, that's me on Twitter. Um, but about me, um, I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm from the cornfields of Indiana, a long line of Chicago Cubs fans who are perpetually disappointed, maybe except for this year, this year's going okay. Um, From a family of all women and about to shake that up by having a baby boy. Um, And I am here, and I'm I'm happy to be here with you today. Um, So National Arts Strategies, we are an organization that, as I like to say quite simply, We create the conditions necessary for others to make change, specifically in the arts. So we have a long history, we have a 30-year history of working actually with arts organizations. And when we started out, we worked really with, you know, the big anchor arts institutions of communities and cities. So the big, you know, 25 million dollar institutions. And we did that for a few years, and we realized, you know, that is our mandate we've kind of fulfilled that. They're doing fine. Um, and then we turned our attention to smaller and mid-sized arts organizations to support those. And after that work, we had progressed in that, we decided, wow, you know, if we really wanna look at moving the needle in society and supporting the arts, what's really exciting is happening on the margin, at the margins, not at the center. So it's happening with the entrepreneurs and the individual artists who are working to create change in their communities, not the really big multi-million dollar arts institutions. And why is that? Well, entrepreneurs are more nimble. They often are more creative problem-solvers. When we talk about creative placemaking, we're often looking at you know, how do we drive a physical or social change in our community? And those who are operating as artists and entrepreneurs They're able to do that without, you know, dragging on a 100-year legacy that the institution carries with it. And so, at NAS, we try to create the conditions necessary for these entrepreneurs and artists to create change. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, but just to introduce myself and set this up, um, I just wanted to reiterate um, what Jordan and Perrin put out there regarding our connections to each other. I run a program called Creative Community Fellows, that's our hashtag, NASCCF. And um, you'll see me connected to a hilarious picture of Jordan at one of our events, um, and then Bridget and Karen in the same photo. And so that brought all of us together. And I, I like showing this slide up front because it really uh, demonstrates the power of networks and what happens when you know you can maximize your network and all of the amazing collaborations and partnerships that can spring out of it. And we'll talk about that a little
0: bit later. But now I want Bridget to take the floor and talk about Five Borough Story Project. Thank you. So I am Bridget, and I created the Five Borough Story Project to produce community storytelling events that bring New Yorkers together through sharing true stories and art inspired by our neighborhoods. So this is a program. It's just me, who is the Five Borough Story Project, but I partner with different people and groups and organizations for each program that I do, so partnership is really, really essential to my work. I could not do anything without partnering with others, Um, and so I produce these community events all throughout the five boroughs and travel to different neighborhoods. And so I'm constantly going into neighborhoods that are not my own, right? So I'm coming in as an outsider, basically. And that makes the partnerships even more important because in order to have a successful event, I need to have really good partners. Um, And I'm going to tell you more about what the events entail, but First, when I say having a successful event, I, to me, it kind of um, has to do with the difference between creative place keeping and creative place making. So these are terms which I also didn't know about until I had the fellowship with National Art Strategies and I heard it for the first time and I was like, oh, <laughs> that totally makes sense. So I think we had one person raise their hand when we asked who's familiar with creative placemaking. Would you, um, not to put you on the spot, but could you tell us what's your understanding of creative placemaking?
4: Well, I'm not actually an artist. Uh-huh. I came about it through um, urban design and I'm a landscape architect. So... Um,
3: yeah, we need you. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you're here.
4: So I mean, actually we call it tactical urbanism. Uh huh. Uh, it's it's just a like I'm going to be working with this uh, you know, outdoor ping pong organization where I work and that's placemaking because taking um, kind of a, maybe a mundane space in the urban environment and turning it and activating it making it um, programmed and um, so I learned about this in grad school and Uh, a lot through, like, parking day, um, which is, a starting in San Francisco, and it's an origin, it goes on in every city, like, all over the world, I think, and, um, it started as buying a parking spot with, you know, a parking meter, but putting, like, grass and chairs into Mm -hmm. it, um, and, uh, yeah, that's basically what I came into placemaking with.
0: Thank you. So yeah, it's basically um, like using arts and culture to shape a place or a neighborhood. um, And that's shaping it physically and also socially. Would you guys like to add anything to that definition?
1: I I think some of the examples that people commonly think of maybe, or or that have come up in this series thus far, Like some of the public plazas you see, so when they've taken Times Square, closed down Broadway and painted that and put some art installations, that is by definition a version of creative placemaking. When you see the Department of Transportation summer streets programs where they close down Park Avenue and you can bike around it until you pass out, that's a version of creative placemaking. There's art installations there and it's it's bringing together um, very diverse cultures to to use that space in a non-conventional way. So I think those are some examples of what it looks like, which is really important, but there are also much more grassroots versions of that, and I think that that in some ways ties exactly back to Bridget's work, uh, some of my work, and probably a lot of the work that's going to be represented up here. So it's a really big continuum, but those are some of the ways that it shows up, I think, in everyday life certainly here in New York City.
0: Yeah. And so it's basically, like, using creative ways to make public spaces more vibrant and beautiful. And so using the arts for that, um, which, of course, is a good thing. But then there are criticisms of creative placemaking that it can, like, sometimes support gentrification and real estate speculation. And so creative place keeping, as opposed to making, kind of grew out as a response to that, um, to have, like, this, using the arts and creativity, it being used by the people who live and work in a place to maintain the social fabric and the culture and the history, rather than, you know, like, revitalizing and changing it, and of course that could always lead to gentrification and displacement. So I wanted to um, share a definition of creative placekeeping. This is by Roberto Bedoya, who's actually paraphrasing another community activist, Jenny Lee, who I think came up with the term creative placekeeping. But it says, creative placekeeping means not just preserving the facade of a building, but also keeping the cultural memories associated with the locale alive keeping the tree once planted in the memory of a loved one lost in a war, and keeping the tenants who have raised their family in an apartment. It's a call to hold on to the stories told on the streets by the locals and to keep the sounds ringing out in a neighborhood populated by musicians who perform at the corner bar. So, with the Five Brothers Story Project, I'm also working with community members to preserve the local history and the culture of a place and the stories um also to combat negative stereotypes of places in the outer in the outer boroughs and like you know neighborhoods that are on the periphery of new york city and the main thing is building connections between new yorkers and we do it through sharing our personal place-based stories and a big part of my inspiration for starting the Five Borough Story Project, it grew out of my own experiences growing up in South Richmond Hill in Queens. Has anyone ever heard of South Richmond Hill? Awesome! Yeah, <laughs> most people have never heard of it. Okay, so it's like all the way up, like around here. You have to take the A train, you know, the A train splits, and like one goes to JFK and the Rockaways, and another one goes a little more to Lefferts. Atrium to leverage. Long commutes. Um, but I really love my neighborhood. Both of my parents were born and raised there, just blocks apart from each other. So I grew up feeling very connected to it. And South Richmond Hill is a really typical outer borough neighborhood because it's like a working class neighborhood. Um, there are a ton of immigrants from all different countries. This is Queens. And it's really culturally rich but it's really deprived when it comes to like public resources and funding for cultural programs. So I my eyes really opened to that fact when I started high school and I started commuting to a very privileged school in downtown Manhattan and then being in Manhattan every day I was like Wow, things are different here and it just opened my eyes to the inequity in the city which is pretty crazy in New York City. Um, some of you may know the richest and poorest congressional districts in New York City are both located, or sorry, in the whole country are both located here in New York City. In Manhattan, on the Upper East Side, and in the South Bronx, just three subway stops apart from each other. So there are neighborhoods that get a lot of love, mostly in Manhattan and Brooklyn, and then there are neighborhoods that just don't get the love that they deserve. And Richmond Hill, of course, falls in the latter category. Um, But at some point, I guess I grew up hearing this message that, like, making it means getting out. And that's the expectation that, like, if you have potential, you're going to get out. So, that's what I did, you know, like, went to college, or high school in Manhattan, college in Ohio, then I worked in Japan. But, I came back, and I really felt like there's no place like home, there's no place I love as much as where I grew up. And I just asked myself, what if we had more opportunities to appreciate and build on the culture that's in neighborhoods like Richmond Hill instead of feeling like we have to jump ship? And so I started the Five Borough Story Project to create more opportunities to do that. So what happens at Five Borough Story Project events? Um, Each event is really unique and they happen in places as different as like bars, cultural centers, libraries, on the streets. But all the events basically have four things in common. Number one is that they will feature performances by uh, storytellers, musicians, poets, dancers, and community members who have something important to say about their neighborhood. Number two is that the events all have participatory activities. So this is a picture of a story circle, which we're actually going to be doing later on today. <laughs> um, and sometimes we'll have facilitated discussions or open mics uh, or writing activities, and we just give people like, different avenues to share their own stories and memories and ideas about their neighborhoods. Um, the third thing they have in common is that the events are all free and open to the public. And the fourth is that I organize all of them using a cultural organizing framework, which is a framework that's using arts in the service of social justice. And so it really emphasizes like deep listening, building relationships over time. Um, And I'll talk about that a little more too. Um, at the events, we always see a beautiful outpouring of neighborhood love, because each event is this hyper-localized celebration of the neighborhood where it takes place. And at the events where I distributed evaluations, um, people have indicated that their interest in their local history and culture increased an in average up to 61%. And why do I use storytelling to do this? Um, I got my master's in family and community education and I, while I was in school, I studied about stories and how the act of sharing personal stories has this really incredible power to quickly create connections between people. So when we share our personal stories, it creates a basis for empathy and helps us like, move beyond simplistic conceptions of other people and places and like, really connect to people. So when we share our stories, we're like building more solidarity, which of course is an important first step before you can do any kind of community organizing. All right. so this is kind of hard to see, but this is a photo of a banner that we hung up. It was a blank banner um, we just put on the wall at one of my first events that I did in the Bronx. And we just invited people to write their reactions after listening to some stories. And um, someone wrote, this proves to me today that the Bronx isn't so bad. (laughs) And yeah, in the work that I do, I've heard a lot of comments like this that just show how impactful it can be to have a space to share like true honest stories so the stories aren't all you know about the good things and like painting a rosy picture you know they're like real stories which can sometimes be ugly but it's done in a way that's like really celebratory And people have said things to me, like at an event in Staten Island, we may be a garbage dump, but we're a dump with culture. (laughs) Um, Like this shows me that we're not this backwards place people like to think we are. So these comments show like how sharing stories can be really therapeutic and how it can also take some of the negative stereotypes because there are so many neighborhoods and entire boroughs that have negative stereotypes associated with them and it can change the narrative and replace those stereotypes with a sense of pride i also think it's really important to know about the past of our city because In New York City, there's just this incredible propensity for change. Things are changing so quickly, and if you don't have, like, a grandma who grew up here and is telling you stories about it, like, how are you going to know? So I love to have elders telling stories about, like, the way things used to be. And at the events, I also like to ask people about what we would like to see preserved from the past and what we want to see changed. And when we hear these stories of the past, it will illustrate alternatives to to the way things are now. And it will also help us imagine new alternatives. So it can help unleash our imaginations and think about a better future, the future that we want to see. So the storytellers are super important, of course, for the events. And the storytellers are as diverse as the city and the neighborhoods. Um, in this picture, there's Fran Golden, who's, she was 91 years old when we did that event last year. And support Gatling was 18 years old. So they're all different ages and backgrounds. But when I do Five hour Story Project events, each event like entails so many partnerships. There's like a partnership with the venue that's hosting it. We, always do the events with a venue that is going to host it for free and like sometimes provide a stipend. Um, so they're one partner. We have partners in the community who are going to help like get the word out and promote the events, and uh, partners who might supply funding. And then the storytellers themselves are the most important partners. Um, I usually spend months planning one event, and the storytellers, we will like have multiple meetings, like talk over ideas, I'll listen to lots of their stories about their neighborhood, and we'll brainstorm together. Like the storytellers in an event will make friends with each other, I'll make friends with them. <laughs> so, it's like partnerships that often lead to friendships. Um and it's very rewarding. But I wanted to talk also about this idea of entering, building and exiting community. And as I mentioned, when I'm going into neighborhoods that are outside of Richmond Hill, I'm really mindful of the fact that like I'm coming into a place that is not my home. And that's Another thing about like thinking about that is also essential to like building trust with the storytellers who I work with and yeah just being mindful of how we're different and also what we have in common. So I was introduced to this idea through a fellowship that I had with the Laundromat project which is an awesome organization that I would be happy to tell anyone about they support socially engaged artists. And we had a workshop, which was led by Urban Bushwoman, which is a dance troupe based in Brooklyn, who also does community building work. Um, and they have this really awesome workshop about entering building and exiting community. So basically, it's that when you enter a community, you should become aware of the values and the leadership and the history of that place before you start engaging. So when we had the fellowship we had the assignment to have like community conversations before we even like started planning doing work and through that process it's also important to identify like the authentic leaders that are in a community so people who are already like doing work there and shaping the neighborhood then building community is putting those values into action, which can often involve questioning and challenging the existing values. And you're doing that while you're working together with the community members. And then you also should be mindful about when you exit to ensure that everyone who participated feels recognized and knows what they learned, what they're taking away from the experience. Does anyone have any questions about anything I said so far? All right. So next, we're going to do our own little story circle, and we're going to talk about partnerships. And this is going to be a chance for you all to share your experiences with partnerships that you've had. Alright, so before we get started, some background on story circle. I love. Developed by the 37 Theater in John O'Neill. And, and then it was like further developed by the Roadside Theater and road Productions with like these really awesome theater companies. And it's basically really useful if you want to like brainstorm an idea, if you want to like identify. Practice. with a successful partnership or a challenge you faced when forming or maintaining partnerships, partnership. And the guidelines for the story circle are that listening deeply is the most important part of this experience. So we are going to ask one person to volunteer to tell the first story. And we can move in a circle from there. But as you're listening to the stories, don't worry what story you're going to tell, you don't have to have a beautifully crafted story, you can just let it arise naturally from listening to the stories of others. Um, the second guideline is that everyone's a participant, so we'll take turns sharing stories, move in a circle. If you are not quite prepared when your turn comes around, you can pass, but just know that your turn will come around again at the end. If you still, like, really don't feel like sharing a story, you don't have to, but I'm sure that will come up. Um, And also, please be respectful, don't interrupt, or debate. Um, If you have questions or anything you want to say, please just save it until after the last person has had a turn to tell their story. And then after that last person speaks, we'll have a little time for cross-talk, so you can discuss within your group, like what you heard, like ask any questions or any comments. We'll have a few minutes for that, and then we're going to all come back together again as one group. Um, and finally, please face your story and respect the two-minute time limit. it. We're going to have, I guess, the facilitators of each group can keep time, so we'll let you know we'll signal when the two minutes are up. So, everyone good? Do you guys have some timers? Anyone can volunteer
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we want to just take a couple minutes to sit here, some feedback from you all. What was that experience like? Were there any common things that you kept hearing come up? Any any takeaways that stand out to you? Yeah. Any Takeaways. So we've all just shared stories with one another. Were there any about partnerships? Were, were there any consistent themes or things that stuck out that you were surprised? Um, I will say our circle.
2: A little bit about your life right? going into entering building and exiting, and how that can be pretty, very tricky when you have a
0: minimal
2: amount of time to do what it is yeah. and how you build up that trust and rapport with people. It's
0: like next day to be gone. <laughs> okay. So, I think those are some of the, the things to do. Mm. that is a challenge. In my group, we talked about well, we shared stories about like successes and failures. And about lessons that we learned, and at the end we were talking about like having transactional partnerships, Mm -hmm. and like working for someone versus working with someone, Mm -hmm. and how yeah those transactional partnerships are like not (laughs) so fulfilling.
4: And we have no sense of community here. It's every artist in their own loft to work with.
3: Very yeah. mm-hmm. isolated. It's an isolated neighborhood.
2: And I guess maybe you will help it be less so. Mm. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, well, if you have other thoughts as we go through the rest of the night, put your hand up and we'll talk about them because I think it's really good uh, to constantly get feedback from one another. But I do want to transition to talking more about, so we've just shared some stories about different partnerships that they mean to us. I think um, such an important part of partnerships is that there needs to be somebody who recognizes that these connections need to be made and that there are a variety of resources that are out there and it's sometimes I just don't know you exist so I can't possibly partner with you. And so then in comes National Arts Strategies. (laughs) this incredible conduit who, they've been around for 20 years? years, 33 now. 33 years now. So they've been making connections and making partnerships a very uh, integral part of their work for 33 years. And we're really, again, so delighted to have Sunny here from from National Arts Strategies, who is the director of the program, which many of us have connected through And uh, with that, Sonia, I'm going to go way and let you take it.
3: Cool, thanks Jordan. Yeah, so we mentioned National Arts Strategies at the beginning of uh, the program, and also this Creative Community Fellows program that so many of us are connected to. Also Joe, (laughs) who's
2: who's in here. Um,
3: So I wanted to tell you first a little bit about that and why we created this program and how partnerships fit into our work with that, and also just all of the things we do at NAS. So Creative Community Fellows, as I mentioned before, is a program for artists and entrepreneurs, or artists slash entrepreneurs, who are trying to drive a physical or social change in their community. And it doesn't have to be for people who first and foremost describe themselves as artists. So we have people in the group who their background, their training, a lot of their work experience, and maybe how they decide to label themselves might be in urban planning, or design, um, or community organizing, that's that's my background, Um, or arts administration, it's Jordan's. Um, So people come from all different fields. We have a woman right now in the program who's an architect, actually two architects. Um, So it's not a program specifically for people who say, you know, I just do studio art, that's all I do. It brings together people who have all sorts of backgrounds and share this common goal of transforming their neighborhoods or contributing to healthy neighborhoods through arts and culture. And the reason that we define it that way and what I think is really unique about the program and different than a lot of other, you know, artist training or artist retreats is because in doing that kind of work, as all of you have brought up in your individual conversations, and as Bridges brought up in her presentation, you really need Um, all different kinds of players with all different kinds of connections to come together to make some of these projects work. So if you're trying to do, you know, ping pong um, installations somewhere publicly, you're probably going to need somebody who knows a lot about zoning permits. You're probably going to need some artists to make it really amazing. You're probably going to need some folks with knowledge of community organizing so that you can you know, get people in the neighborhood to talk to you about what they see as the community assets and how you can play upon those to make your dreams a reality
2: um,
3: and, and make their dreams a reality as well. So all of those people are really, really, you know, an important part of the process. I can speak to one of the um, architects that I mentioned uh, that's in the program right now. Her name is Bucky Willis. She lives in Detroit. Um, she you know, went to school for architecture and design and used all of her contacts and her uh, connections to create the dream for her hometown of Detroit of having communal gathering spaces for people to come together, relax, make art with no sort of, you know, barriers to entry, no entry fee, no, you know, stuffy walls or anything like that. So what she's doing right now is actually taking blighted buildings, removing the roof of them so that they need absolutely no maintenance and upkeep and then designing the interior space to be something that's sustainable. And she's using lots of artist partners to do it so that, so that it really reflects what the community needs. So that's just one example. So um, this program, um, we support those in it by giving them the you know tools, a lot of curriculum that we've built out of social entrepreneurship. Uh, business school, cultural organizing, lots of different fields that we pull together to create this the curriculum. But I think more importantly is the network that the fellows get from being a part of the, the program, and I think this is a great testament to that. Um, many of our fellows in the past have used folks in other sectors to be a part of their work. I can think of our friend out west right now, Nick De La Fuente who's in Phoenix doing this amazing community gardening project called Spaces of Opportunity. He's partnered with a botanical garden, a social services agency, lots of different community players bringing them together to make this reality, including lots of fellows that he's brought in from other locations. I think he brought in our friend Dessa to do a logo design and our friend Jess to to, uh, facilitate a community meeting. So people are really using that network. The other way that um, we build networks in this program is sort of intergenerationally and between different, um, you know, folks at different stages in their career. So I like to use the example of Justina and Genera. Genera was what we call a mentor in our program. But if any of you have a better label for that, I would love to hear it because mentor is not the right word for the relationship we set up. Um, I guess dual directional mentoring is the best thing I can think of. (laughs) Um, And as a testament to that, Justina was a participant in the program. Janera uh, was what we call a mentor. And uh, one day, you know, Justina flew to Pittsburgh to hang out with Janera for a day and shadow her, go around her work um, at the Kelly Strayhorn Theater where she's the executive director. And um, I called up Janera a couple days later and just said, "Well, how did it go with Justina? Tell me about what you learned, um, or, or, or you know, what did what did you teach her? What did you show her?" And and um, Janara said, well, you should really be asking me about what I learned from Justina. And wow, that taught me a big lesson that, you know, we all have so much to learn from people in different generations, um, other sectors, and at different stages in our career. So I think some of the folks actually who are represented in this queue make some place series, our men- mentors in the program. We have Javier next week.
1: Yeah, so David Corin, who's a mentor, he spoke last week. He's of Figment DC, or he's a Figment, um, excuse me, which is a, they, you might have seen him on Governor's Island, it's art installations. Um, Javier Torres, who is the director of grant making with Place yep. America, so that's a workshop next week that we'll pitch again, but it's all about funding opportunities for artists. Um, so yeah, we've had a lot of representation from connections that you've opened yeah. up for us. Yeah.
3: So a lot of a lot of mentors, you know, still involved with the fellows, which is great. Um, our big challenge now is. Um, you know how are how are we supporting people to make really solid partnerships and make the most of their network that they're getting? You know, I think all of these organic connections are happening in the program. That's really interesting. But what I'm in, but what I really want to do next is, you know, how do we build out um, curriculum to support understanding what goes into a really really solid partnership? And so that's what we're working on now. So I think it's always, you know, I'm open to your ideas. If you have ideas on, um, you know. How to support people in that way? Um, I, we practice what we preach at NAS. Almost all of our work is done through partnerships as well, and I think this is the part we'll, we'll kind of get into. You know, what are the challenges? What are the advantages of working in, in a partnership? Um, these are just you know some of the folks we work with. Um, <laughs> you may you know little about my organization so you may not assume but compared to almost everybody on this list actually everybody on this list we're really the little guy in the partnership mm-hmm. we really are and so I often hear from artists that you know in, in partnership with an organization they feel like they're the little guy so I'm setting this up to say that I can relate um, I know what it's like to have you know a, re, you know, a behemoth um, an organization with a lot of power um, in the relationship and you know to have to hold your own against that is really tough. I don't know if you've ever Encountered that in your work.
2: Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm um, What do they I guess Connecting to you what do these institutions as a partnership or are they, what are they what are they getting from this partnership with you? Seeing as yeah. you consider yourself a little guy versus I'm good. That's a really great <laughs> question.
3: Yeah. So it's interesting, a lot of these are educational institutions and for them some of it is um, intellectual um, curiosity. You know, if you're the Ross School of Business at University of Michigan, you work mostly with, you know, foreign banks and automobile manufacturers and the people who run those organizations. So it's a lot of it is, you know, wow, that's, that's really interesting to see how the frameworks that we teach can be applied to the cultural sector and how we can make change in our world that way. So, some of it is, is sort of a passion mm-hmm. that some of those faculty members have towards the arts and improving communities. Um, and I think also the curiosity of, you know, wow, these people are engaging in a very different way than the folks we usually work with. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough then to, to be the little guy because you certainly. Um, in some ways, have a lot more at stake um, if something fails. You know, I was at a meeting um, with a bunch of grantees from a particular funder on Monday, and the funder was saying, um, you know, this this portfolio of grantees here, this is all a big experiment. Here are X, Y, and Z what we're trying to do and the logic behind it and why we think it's going to work out. But we might be completely wrong. We might just fail at this. And one of the participants, one of the grantees in the meeting, very aptly pointed out, you know, it's a privilege to be able to say that. It's a huge privilege to be able to fail, and we can't all say that. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a really interesting point to say, you know, a a foundation, a private foundation can afford to fail at one of their experiments, whereas Mm -hmm. we grantees, you know, that would be tough. So I I can understand if, you know, you feel like the little guy in a partnership. Um, some of those things are, are at stake. Yeah. So actually, before we go into that activity, I think we're going to do some Q&A. Yeah, so
1: I'm, I wanted to... Actually, I have a question. For you, but we wanted to make sure that if you have questions that have sprung up, that this is a good time to ask those. Um, and my question is, is what... From your perspective, Bridget and Sunny, what are some of the necessary steps? Um, like, if, if I'm an artist, for instance, and I'm usually working solo, what would you say are some of the necessary steps to start establishing new partnerships and expanding my network?
0: Really important first step is coming to events like this to get out there. I mean, social media is a great way to do it, but I think nothing compares to like physically getting out there and meeting people in person, um, going to places where you can hear about what other people are doing and tell people about what you're working on. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think
3: that's absolutely true, and then. Um, you know, there are good, I mean, you all have Fractured Atlas here in New York, you know, from re- represents Fractured Atlas, um, but a lot of services like that where you can be a member of an organization and then, yeah, come to events that they're holding and meet other people. Yeah,
0: yeah in New York City, there's such a plethora of, like, networking events and talks and lectures and, yeah, there are so many ways to get out there.
1: Is there anybody here who's connected with a network uh, outside of Q, perhaps? Um, and how do you stay? How do you stay connected? What are the sites that you go to? You know, Meetup.com was one that was, I think, still is very popular. But it's a great place to find other groups of people who are interested in things, everything from photography to nature walks to art. I mean, I think everybody's represented in there, and it's a great place that. You can just start, Like that's one I'm asked about a lot. Also volunteering, um, more and more people I know are like, I wanna get involved with a cause, like what do I even do to start with that? I mean a very basic way in, especially with New York City, is like, go to newyorkcares.org and start with them because they're gonna pair you up with opportunities. Um, but that there are huge amounts of organizations who are always needing volunteers, so, um, Other resources that you all have seen, or or that you're actively involved with, or channels or networks, um, especially as artists, show I know the eventbrite kind of kind
2: of surf around on there. Like the event we had last week, someone came, like just by chance, like happened to find our event on there, and she, you know, she came and met other people, and um, she hadn't heard of you before. So um, yeah, and they make suggestions for things that you might be interested in. So that's kind of like. do a lot of the community organizations that you work with in the various boroughs, do they contact you? Is it you contacting them? Is it like 50-50 or you know, what?
0: Hmm. Um, It's increasingly them contacting me. So I've been doing the Five Borough Story Project for just over three years now. And yeah, it's at first I started it like (laughs) with no funding and very few contacts. And it was like me making all the events happen. Now it's more like me being invited to do programs. And become more established. yeah, Yeah, and that has come about just, you know, by being there, like by being active. Yeah, you don't need much to start being active. Like I, you know, dove into it with very, very, very little um but just from like doing these programs then people have heard about it and um yeah i sometimes don't even know how people hear about it but like a really huge um What is it? I can't think of the word. Like, a jumping off for me came from a fellowship with the Laundromat Project, which I mentioned earlier, which I will just plug again. It's such an awesome organization. It was basically, yeah, it was started by a woman who, like, recognized how most people don't have opportunities in our busy lives to go and visit arts institutions. So she was like why don't we bring arts to places where people are already going? And they started doing art-making workshops in laundromats, and then expanded to have like artist residencies in the laundromats, and then they have fellowships to support socially engaged artists. And they also have some, like, well, yeah, actually a lot of public events. Um, their biggest event is Field Day, which just passed in October. They're going to have a like, public art potluck, mm-hmm. which people might be interested in, um, so you can check out the laundromat project.
4: Going mm-hmm. mm-hmm. out the laundromat project, I have a question on um, locations, uh, like if any of you can speak to this, because it seems like a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in that project because it's in, like, what I would call kind of a mundane space, mm-hmm. and I like how it's kind of an informal thing, it's like it just popped up, you know, and um, I'm wondering how people have had uh, experiences in either uh, you know, the public right away or um, I don't know, like semi-public spaces instead of organizational space. I'm gonna
2: come sit here because I'm. <laughs> Wait, can you read just
1: oh, raise yeah. the question? Yeah. that. So instead of like an
4: institution or like an organization uh, being the location for these these placemaking events. Uh, I just want to hear somebody speak a little bit about like, the, like existing right, like a street or um, mm. something, something a, a little bit more public
1: about how to uh, start doing work there. You mean?
4: Well, yeah, like, people's experiences there because I really like the laundry
0: in that product. Can yeah.
2: you put a pink foam table with the laundry <laughs> <mat>? <laughs> I would do my laundry then. Yeah. <laughs> I think to speak of the Laundromat Project, and it was started by Risa Wilson, who was not an artist um, herself. And I think her one of her missions was to bring art to place in communities versus people having to go to these big stuffy institutions in order to appreciate and enjoy art. Um, uh, so speaking to that, I, I, so when your, your question is you want to learn more about how people do that in public spaces. I, I yeah, just
4: people's experiences in, in the public right it, or, or mm-hmm. like these semi-public spaces
1: like monuments. You know, I'm just wondering if anybody has experience. Yeah, so I've actually done a lot of work in in right. public spaces. Um, <laughs> So, a specific example, so I worked with the Astoria Park Alliance, which is a friends out of the park group out in Astoria, and in conjunction with the Department of Transportation Summer Streets, we hold a big festival every year called uh, Shorefest, and basically we close down about a quarter-mile stretch of road and have pop-up arts and culture, uh, health and wellness, kind of the variety. And I would say, at least it, up to this point in my career, it kind of taps into every level of different like partnership I could think of or the different sectors. Um, it takes a lot of coordination. That's my experience. It takes a heck of a lot of coordination and I think somewhat of a, a thick skin because you're often told no, um, yeah. because you're often told why things can't work and so it takes a really persistent attitude to look through that and find the ways that it can work um, and and how you know and you're constantly compromising, I would say. I think it's well worth it because there is so much shared public space that goes unused, like that, that pursuit is a very honorable and worthwhile one, but it comes with a lot of headache, and um, it comes with a lot of reward because then people are like, well, I'm in this stretch of street that I thought I could never be in because it's always so overpopulated by cars or whatever it might be. So um, it's it's really gratifying to be able to take something that otherwise is used for you know, a very different purpose in, in bringing back to the people, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, um, but it takes a lot of information. Yeah, absolutely.
4: I think there's definitely opportunities there.
1: For yeah, the yeah, definitely. Does
2: it sometimes even beg the question though, like, do people want to know why you're doing it? I think people often want to know why.
1: Um, uh, yeah, and that's, that is an evolving answer to that question like we were just talking about this a little bit in our small group or in our story, story circle like keeping the work that you do authentic and keeping it like true to a purpose that i can sleep like with myself at night knowing like that's why i'm doing it so let me explain a little bit more, which is, like, I could take a, a stretch of road and do a pop-up beer garden, and that would be entertaining, and that would bring in a group, and, and that might even, like, connect with somebody that, like, has, like, a, a reaction to it, and that changes their life. Um, the work I prefer to do is much more about, like, no pop-up beer gardens, necessarily. Let's do, like, some beautification efforts. Let's do some volunteer work. Let's connect with the kids and get their, like, let's earn their trust, and so that they, like bring their parents back. And like, it's a very grassroots, slow churn process that involves me figuring out like all the churches, all the community resource groups, Um, but, that's like that's what I'd love to do, and so I, that, that is my version of authentic creative placemaking or bringing space back to people, and um, to me it doesn't feel burdensome because I enjoy the connections that come to take, that, that it requires to, to make that kind of um, social interaction and, and community buy-in possible. Um, I just think it's more fun when we get to do it together, so uh, yeah. Joe. Yeah.
4: So I'm curious um, about because so much of partnership is alignment of values. Has there ever been a time when the values didn't line up, and how did you all handle a potential partnership that could have been great, but due to values turned out to be not so great? How mm-hmm. have you all handled that?
2: I found out. Walked away. It's very hard. I was working on um, a park project, and you know, I had an idea of let's bring this community that was, you know, being rapidly gentrified. So there's this element of trust. The one I did not live in the neighborhood, so I don't have that. Like, you're not anchored here in any kind of way. You don't necessarily belong here. Um, And working with a person who had a very different vision of what this park should manifest Mm -hmm. as. Um, His was a lot about beautification, a lot about bringing in performances, um, in my opinion. And I felt that mine was more about community building through artistic and cultural events and programs. And I'm sure there was going to be an alignment at some point. But at some point, I also had to decide is this partnership going to really work for me? Do I have the time to invest in it? How, How? I'm very passionate about it, but at some point I'm just like turning my wheels. And I haven't built up the, maybe perhaps, a knowledge base of how to get in there and work this better. Like there was at one point, like the freedom, like go do whatever you want to do, go do your art stuff. And I said no, like I, I need more engagement with more partnership with you in order to do that, and he was just like, no, no, like, let's just do arts and crafts and that works, kind of thing. Um, so at some point I just had to tell myself, like, you know, this is just not going to work out for both of you, mm-hmm. and yes, it could have been a possibly wonderful partnership, but I don't think I was the right fit for that partnership in order to bring about that vision.
3: Yeah, I, I learned the importance of talking about values up front uh, the hard way because <laughs> I didn't in one case, um, and luckily we were able to, you know, salvage the relationship. But it, and luckily it turned out we all we had really similar values. We just hadn't established that. We hadn't taken the time to sit down and talk about our hopes and our dreams for this work before we dove into like doing a grant application um, because sometimes you know you're on a deadline and that's. You think that's the most important thing, but you know the most important thing is establishing that up front. I guarantee it saves so much time later um, yes. to just establish up front. You know how how are we rooted in this work? Um, what are our values for going forward, and what are our boundaries in terms of what we will and will not do? Um, so yeah, I mean you clearly you know you you know that already, but I had to learn that the hard
2: way. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, when I started, I think um, I had a really hard time saying no. And when someone invited me to collaborate on something, I would like always say yes. Um, And one time I said yes to, I was invited by this curator who um, was, yeah, doing a series of programs in this empty space in the South Bronx. And um, then I learned more about the program that she was working with and how that organization kind of had a problematic relationship where they did another uh, event in an empty space in South Bronx and like invited all these real estate developers. And yeah, I was like, that's the event that I was doing was you know, that resisting displacement in the Bronx and I was like, oh, this is like <laughs> totally not a good fit for a partnership. And that was the first time actually that like I agreed to do something and then like backed out of it. And it was mm-hmm. really agonizing for me, even though like the it was clear that like that was the right thing for me to do, but it was still just so hard to say no. But I think that's something that I'm getting better at doing.
1: <laughs> Are there other questions? Okay. Bring those up. Um, we're going to close out with an activity that I think is particularly important, especially as we talk about partnerships. I'm, I'm going to ask Sunny to introduce that. Um, I want to quickly plug, because as we taper out of this activity, I suspect people will start to need to go. So. Thank you again for being here. Um, thank you for being involved in the conversation. Thank you to our incredible hosts and uh, sponsors of this uh, series, the QR Foundation. Shona is in the back from Q, she'll tell you everything, and Eva. Um, we have, So this is three out of five tonight, the next two workshops. So next week we'll be at the Bronx Museum of the Arts and we'll be talking about funding. Uh, so, as I mentioned, we're really thrilled to have Javier from Art Place America uh, with us. We'll also have an artist, Kehan, with us, uh, speaking about funding, how to acquire it. We're not going to teach you how to write proposals, but we're going to show you where you can go to to find out where the money is and how you can get your hands on it. So that's really important. And then we're going to round out our series in two weeks back here at Q. So that'll be October 12th. Talking, it's The series or the workshop is called The Measuring Stick, but it's all about program evaluation and uh, metrics. And if that scares you, because it's a big word, don't be. Because what we're gonna do in that workshop is talk about very tangible ways that we can look at our work, make sure that it's kind of got a focus, an objective that we're working towards that, and how that information ends up becoming really, really important when you look to funding and all the different pieces of producing, producing art. So definitely come back for those, please. And with that, Sunny, give us the luck circle.
3: The luck circle. All Mm -hmm. right. So, you know, we we talked about earlier how are the ways you can actually meet people that you might go into partnership with and and expand your network. And we said, yeah, one of those ways is to come to events like this. But that's not going to happen if you just, you know, sit in your chairs and listen to us talk, which is why we wanted to make this particularly interactive and um, included these activities. So. the luck circle is an activity actually based on research um, and it, it comes from a researcher who wanted to study the science of luck. How many people think that they are lucky people? Lucky. Consider yourselves lucky, okay. Yeah so, so this man wanted to study is there an actual science to luck? Can we actually study how you can become Um, Luckier, is there a way to sort of change your luck if you think you're unlucky, those who didn't raise their hands? And so basically what it boiled down to in a nutshell is this researcher found that there are three things, there are three factors that make those people, you know, who raise their hands, those lucky people, um, always having these really um, great encounters. And those three things are, the first is perspective. Right. So, so perspective, you know, how you look at a situation that you came into, um, into contact with. So maybe um, it just so happens that like twice in the same day, you in particular went into a bank and, you know, there, there was a bank robber there. And, you know, two different people in that situation that had that weird encounter twice in a day might go home to their families and one person might say, man, you know, I'm so unlucky, this is happening to me twice in a day, this, I'm the least lucky person in the world. And somebody else might say, wow, I am so lucky I'm alive, <laughs> You know, nothing happened. Um, so it's perspective is the first. The second is the use of weak ties. And so that means that when you're looking for something new, when you need something, a resource or support or a connection, you have a network that is not just the same five people, that you look to all of the time because all of the same ideas and resources and contacts kind of flow the same between those five people. So the more you can expand your network and are okay with calling up, "Hey, you know, I haven't talked to you in 5 years, but but you know, we had a really good connection at one point and I was wondering if you could help me with something I'm working on." So lucky people tend to use those types of weak connections. And the third is that they ask so lucky people will put what they need out into the universe. And that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. We're going to actually use our new, newly found weak ties within this network, each other, folks we didn't really know very well, and um, make ask, make re- requests of each other. Um, so this is basically how it goes. We'll go back into the groups um, that you were just in to do the story circle. And, I'd like everybody, you know, as, as you're moving there, to think of and maybe write down one or two personal or professional requests you would like to make. And this can be anything, really. Like, I've done this with groups, and at one group that we had, um, someone, their request was they were looking for a, a new wrinkle cream. Fine, it's and everything is allowed. But but what was so exciting was everybody in the group was like so energized that, by that request, you know, one of one of the you know other men in the group was like, oh, you have to try this, and someone was like, well, you know, what kind of are they like here or here? Or, you know, what kind of so so everybody was really like propelled to help with this request. Okay, so it can be that kind of an ask. It can be um, something you know I'm looking for um, a graphic designer for my project. The more specific about it. The better responses you'll get. So, if you're looking for a graphic designer, does it need to be somebody who works pro bono? Do they have to be in the city? Do you, are you cool working with a student who's learning? Or, you know, what are the specifics around your ask? So, those are some things to think about when you're writing them down. Then, when you're in your group, um, one by one, we're going to make our request to the circle. So, I might say, you know, Hey, my, my wonderful group of four over here. Um, I'm going on vacation next month to Italy, and I'm looking for somebody who might let me like crash in their place in Rome. Do you know anybody? And you know, a couple of my group mates might think, oh gosh, I don't know anybody who can help with this. But if you can really everybody try to at least think of one even loose connection that will be helpful for this person, it will really be supportive. So maybe my group mate might say, you know, I really don't know, but I have a friend who's a travel blogger and will probably, you know, have some ideas, so I'll set you in, in touch with her. Um, so that's you know basically how this flows. Everybody makes a request, and each time a request is given to the circle, everybody else tries to at least surface one kind of idea. Does
0: that make sense?
3: Any questions? (laughs) Okay.
0: I would like to say I came to the first conversation in the Makes and Place series, and when we were doing a Q and A, there was a woman in the audience who said she's an artist and she has kind of been like doing this guerrilla project where she is putting art in parks and like she's putting things on statues that are in parks and she's like, but I really want to know how I can like do this on like officially instead of like sneaking in and like doing it when no one's looking. And then a woman in the audience was like, Oh, I work for the Parks Department, so let's talk. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, it's so beautiful. You never know until you ask. So let's tap into the resources and knowledge that exists in this room. Let's do it.